Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be covering the Arab Spring, and we had a cool interview with Dr. Ahmed Abdurabu, who is an expert on the Middle East and is from Cairo, Egypt, and was able to, has written extensively about the Arab Spring and Middle Eastern politics. Uh, but before we get into that, always feel free to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Always feel free to give us a rating or a review. It helps us get uh, our name out there and also gives me honest and feedback about what I can improve. If you listen to us on Spotify, they don't really give you an option to directly rate. So I'd encourage you to either comment on our social media or reach out to me directly, either about things you think I can improve or topics that, or authors that you would like me to interview. I'm always looking for feedback and I've really enjoyed this so far. And um Again, we had a pretty cool interview, and I'm definitely going to do some more background on what kind of led to the uh, Arab Spring. Now, to understand the Middle East, it is a very – what's the right word here? It's a very complex region in the world. For the vast majority of the Middle East as a region's existence, it's always been under single entities or different empires, for example. So when Muhammad, you know, first started the religion of Islam in the mid 600s uh, and the religion began to spread throughout what is the modern Middle East and the North Africa and to um, Spain and all these different places, the vast majority of the time, there were different Islamic empires that controlled the Middle East and Northern Africa and these different areas. So, for example, uh, after Muhammad's death, there was the Umayyad Empire. There was the uh, Mamluk Empire that controlled Egypt. There was the, obviously, the Ottoman Empire, uh, which is critical to the understanding of the modern Middle East. Um, it really... Again, this idea of a nation state in the Middle East is a really relatively new concept overall. And the modern Middle East is really a brand new concept for a lot of the people there. The Ottoman Empire, which we you know talked about before, I believe in episode uh, 13, we obviously covered the Ottoman Habsburg Wars. Um, after really the Ottoman Habsburg Wars, the Ottoman Empire began a very long decline in influence and power and territory, really from the early 1600s all the way to World War One, when it was destroyed, um, you know, being on the side of the central powers with, and being allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary. And really the European powers had slowly chipped away at the different holdings of the Ottoman Empire. So, for example, in Northern Africa, uh, empires like Italy and Britain took territory from them. Um, Russia took uh, Crimea and uh, areas in the Caucasus um, away from them. Um, in the east, they had lost um, territory um, to the British um, in the form of Iran during uh, the Napoleonic Wars. So by the time World War I arrives and the Ottoman Empire is allied with Germany, Austria, Hungary, the empire had obviously had lost the vast majority of ter uh, territory. So it was pretty limited to what is modern day Turkey, the Middle East, uh, and the Middle East pretty much. Obviously, Britain had controlled Egypt. And one of the key events that happens towards the end of World War One is the, what is called the Pick Sykes Agreement. And this was an agreement basically between the British and the French to basically just carve up the Middle East and integrate it into their already existing colonial empires. 
the British and French obviously had extensive colonies across the globe in Africa and Asia. Obviously, they had lost most of their territory in North Africa, thanks to the United States. Uh, so they had always been looking to add territory to the empire. So after World War One, the British again, and the British and the French basically just chopped up the Middle East and integrated it and drew state lines with zero regard for the culture, for the religious sects, Shia and Sunni, and for the different uh, tribal groups and cultural uh, separations that had existed for centuries. And that is, in my view, one of the key key issues why there's so many problems in the Middle East is we have all these different groups sort of mixed in together. And another key thing to sort of understand in the Middle East is the divide between Sunni and Shia. And that's basically like two religious groups within the religion of Islam. And I'm not totally familiar on the exact differences, but they are two groups. Um, an analogy, for example, would be in the religion of Christianity, we have sort of two groups. We have Protestant and Catholic. And we had, obviously, the Thirty Years' War uh, between the Catholics and the Protestants in Europe. Um, for the same sort of thing, uh, Islam has had, you know, civil wars between Sunni and Shiite groups. For example, the Ottoman Empire um, had an eastern rival called the, I believe it was the Safavid Empire. They were a Shia empire, and those two clashed for centuries until eventually the that empire fell and the British took over. So understanding that dynamic is also super important. And really in the lead up to the Arab Spring in 2011, the region obviously the found the, the finding of oil in the region, I believe in the early 1930s or 20s, led to sort of a boom in the region. Just money poured in as countries, uh, you know, sort of took... Uh, was able to get oil. So countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, were able to build, you know, huge cities and reap a ton of benefits from oil money. Um, so that's another key issue. And then really in the lead up to 2011, obviously 2003, we have the American invasion of Iraq, which was uh, critical to instability in the region. Uh, we also had uh, just civil wars and obviously terrorism. So there's all these different things going on, and uh, we didn't really talk about it. We talked about individual countries and what the sort of outcome of the Arab Spring was. It's, you know, it's it's an interesting event, especially for a region that hasn't necessarily known democracy. This sees the democratic movements um, sort of, you know, just kind of like a domino effect falling in all these different countries. Um, so, again, we talked with Dr. Um, I'm Ed Abrabu, who is a professor at the University of Denver and professor that I've had um, for multiple classes. Uh, he's super knowledgeable, especially in the Middle East, and it was a pretty interesting interview, so I hope you guys definitely enjoy this. So we'd like you to welcome on today's uh, podcast, Dr. Abhed Abrabu. He is a visiting professor at the University of Denver and teaches in international studies. He spent eight years in Japan where he obtained uh, his master's from Maihai University and his PhD from Hokkaido University. Um, he's also published several articles in peer-reviewed journals on democratization in Egypt and other Arab nations. He also is known among other Egyptian scholars for a specialization in civil military relations, political Islam, and the democratization in the Middle East. So, uh, Professor, welcome uh, to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. So we can kind of go uh, towards the Arab Spring, which starts in 2011, but I want to go back a little um, and talk a little bit about like how the history of Islam 
um, played uh, a role in the Arab Spring and how it plays a super important role um, in the Middle East? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, Islam is one of the major uh, religions in the Middle East. It's maybe the religion of, of the overwhelming majority of, of Middle Eastern people. And, uh, and Islam has been always there constituting culture, political culture, political history, etc., and um, um, we, of course, we can go back as as much as you can. But like, just to make it brief, uh, the real face-off between Islam and democracy started with the collapse of the Ottomans in 1923. And and because at at at, at this moment, there was a real face-off between Islam and modernity, uh, political modernization, and and what some people thought to be uh, the, the correct, proper Islamic institutions, uh, a face-off between some Islamic concepts like shura and democracy, etc. So it was a real face-off between, between uh, you know, some traditional cultures related to Islam and, and some modern cultures brought by uh, colonizers. Uh, uh, just to be brief, some people back then thought that all democratic organizations or institutions and procedures like democracy, like political parties, like constitutions, like civil laws, etc., are just maybe some tools uh, brought by colonizers to eradicate the Islamic identity. Uh, that was not 100% true, but at least that was the environment back then. And, and ever since uh, the Ottomans collapsed, we started to have two major groups uh, among Arabs and Middle Eastern people. One is a group called Arab nationalism or nationalism in general, uh, calling for secularism, calling for uh, some sort of like an Arab collective identity versus another group, which is Islamism uh, or Islamists, who who were mainly working to uh, revive this Islamic idea, the Islamic caliphate system, etc. And, and both trends or both groups have been always struggling over political resources, over political institutions, over power in general. And it wasn't until 2011 when, for, for the first time ever, uh, there seemed to be some sort of reconciliation between both groups. And, and both of them had an agreement that hopefully they can work together to compromise a group, uh, to compromise a project uh, of good governance and democracy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is just for briefly the, yeah. the history of that. So I did want to ask some overarching questions sure. before getting into specific sure. countries. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was uh, George W. Bush's um, democracy promotion plan in the Middle East. Um, I thought that kind of was interesting, uh, specifically because obviously foreign powers had been involved in the Middle East for most of the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, how did this uh, democracy promotion plan um, have any effect any effect in the lead up to the Arab Spring, or do you think it didn't really have any effect? In in my point of view, it did help. At least it kind of like seeded the the seeds for for you know the the early uh, uh, collective movements among many Arab countries, like in Egypt, like in Tunisia, like even in Saudi Arabia and many other Arab countries. The project of uh, democracy promotion adopted by George Bush, I mean Bush forty three was mainly about this idea of like if we want to eradicate uh, terrorism and, and fundamentalism etc after September 11th then we have to allow all political groups to uh, to work freely 
in, in Arab countries. Uh, because uh, the very simple equation in political science is if you shut groups out of politics, then they will explode. They will just go for uh, secret uh, organizations and secret political activities, etc. And, and, and as a very, the very immediate result of the democracy promotion program was to allow and to empower many civil society organizations in Egypt and in many other Arab countries. This idea of the civil society, NGOs, social movements, uh, some sort of like a very uh, relatively you know, free media platforms, etc., started to exist in many Middle Eastern countries. And, and that's why I do believe that that did help somehow, even though the program itself didn't succeed and it failed very soon. But I think it did help uh, to trigger some new dynamics that helped to to bring the Arab Spring later on in 2011. Okay. Yeah, so another, I think, big part of the Middle East for pretty much the last 60 years, ever since the state of Israel was founded, has been the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, do you think this con like ongoing conflict or um, past wars between the Israelis or Arab states played any role during the Arab Spring, or do you think that is a completely separate issue? Yes, there are two different ways to look at this. One is to see that, of course, this compromise, uh, or what seemed to be a brief compromise between Islamism and Arab nationalists during the Arab Spring, was the, the, the first moment ever since Israel was established to, to have this collective identity among Arabs. Uh, that hoped, at least many did hope, uh, to change the political equation in the Middle East by uh, helping a Palestinian state to, to be established, an independent Palestinian state to be established. But then there is also another side of that, another angle, which is uh, many countries just became very self-concentrated, self-focused, and didn't pay much attention to the Palestinian issue. So like most of Egyptian headlines, the Jordanian headlines, Tunisian headlines, Moroccan headlines, were mainly catching news related to the domestic environment instead of, of paying attention to the regional context. Uh, anyways, in, in, in my point of view, as, as the Arab Spring has failed in many countries, maybe the only exception here is Tunisia, uh, that didn't help much the Palestinian issue. And, and it, 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 uh, it did lead to this deficit in the political power between Israelis and, and Arabs. Mm -hmm. So like the last big overarching question, uh, before we dive into specific countries, what do you think were um, the main causes of the Arab Spring? Everything related to injustice, every, everything related to the very poor uh, uh, living conditions of, of, of many Arabs. Uh, you can speak here of unemployment, you can speak here of poverty, you can speak here of inequality, uh, you can speak here of political tyranny and political uh, dictatorships and totalitarianism, etc. Um, uh, but I think the major reason is people were looking for much better living conditions. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to do that by changing the political structure and the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So we can die. So obviously, the Arab Spring starts um, in Tunisia in 2011. Um, can you explain the main event that starts that and why that Tunisia has really been the only uh, country that's been able to be successful in implementing a democracy um, among the Arab Spring? Arab states that participate in the Arab Spring? Uh, first of all, this is a very unexpected case for so many Arabs. It's a, a it's surprising case to, to so many Arabs. I mean, um, you know, Tunisia is a very small country. 
and it was very well controlled by a dictatorship by the name of Ben Ali. Economically speaking, they were not that bad. I mean, they were doing much better than many other Arab countries. They had better education, much more access and exposure to the West, etc. What happened was uh, a street vendor was slapped and his card kind of got confiscated by a police officer. And he was, I think, was trying to argue with her and she slapped him. You know, one of the uh, things that can happen almost every day in, in Arab streets of, of being the police being very brutal and abuses uh, human rights, etc. And but, but the guy was like highly educated and he felt kind of like he was the only uh, income provider for his family. So he, he simply got very frustrated and he decided to set himself on fire and he... Uh, um, got like 70% of his body burned and he spent some days in the hospital before he died. And that was a trigger of like demonstrations and uprisings in Tunisian streets, which was unexpected. Um, many people didn't, including myself. I was back then living in Japan and I remember that I didn't really pay that much attention to the what's going on. I thought that Ben Ali will definitely be able to suppress that as, easy as, as easily as anyone can imagine, but it, it didn't. And, and, and it just people... Uh, were out of control, and and so Ben Ali decided to flee the country because he thought that uh, maybe the military uh, can put him in custody or under house arrest, whatever. He did flee to to Saudi Arabia, and that was a very successful story, and that triggered the the domino effect of of having similar events taking place in Egypt, in Yemen, in Libya, in 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 uh, Syria, etc. Uh, why Tunisia is the only successful country? This is a very big question. I'm not sure if I can answer it in in, in a few seconds. But like, I, I think that the, let's let's mainly focus on one thing, which is a compromise. In any democratic country, one magic term is compromise. Without compromises, you can never uh, preserve or keep a, a, a healthy democratic system going on. I think that the main reason for why Tunisians managed to hold on and, 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 and keep the democratic process going so far, despite all the difficulties, is that they were able to compromise. And I, I hear mean uh, compromises mainly between Islamists and seculars. Mm-hmm. I think this is, yeah, one of the main reasons. Okay, so yeah, the next two states that followed Tunisia were Libya and Egypt, but we can kind of do one at a time. Um, I think we can start with Egypt. Um, obviously, Egypt... Um, if you could kind of just explain um, their spring, how the ability to briefly transition to democracy, um, and then the military coup that's now kind of led Egypt kind of back to where it started. Uh, uh, mentioning uh, the, the success of Tunisia in, in, in reconciliation and compromises, you can speak of Egypt to be exactly the opposite. I mean, so the Egyptians uh, talked to streets, they managed to force Mubarak, uh, who, by the way, just died this morning. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they managed to, to force him out of power. It seemed to be a very, uh, um, you know, optimistic moment of Egyptians. And, and what happened next is is that, unfortunately, they, they didn't manage, and I mean by they, I mean the many segments of the Egyptian society, seculars, liberals, Islams, etc., didn't manage to compromise. So what happened was they were divided easily, um, and then each side was trying to make a deal with the military against the other side. The military simply uh, divided them and 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 uh, managed finally to to intervene in politics by a popular uh, coup, 
Uh, I mean, a military coup that is supported by many segments of the Egyptian society. And many people supported the coup because they thought that the coup is just a momentarily kind of action to force uh, the former president, Mohamed Morsi, the president who came uh, to be elected from the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and then the, the military will hand power to them, and of course, which didn't happen. And and as, as you said, so far, the military is in power in Egypt, and, and Egypt is... There is no democracy to speak of, of a backsliding democracy, but but definitely the political transition failed. Mm -hmm. So Libya pretty much failed from the start. And I think Libya is also kind of unique because NATO opted to intervene against um, Gaddafi. Um, and they are sort of similar that both dictators were overthrown relatively quickly and Libya was a little bit more violent. Um, why do you think NATO decided to intervene in Libya while kind of refraining from other conflicts during the Arab Spring? And do you think this kind of hurt Libya's ability to uh, create a democracy? You know, uh, to, to be honest, I don't blame NATO, or I, at least I don't think that the failure of Libya should be contributed to NATO, even though I'm not a big fan of uh, military actions taken by foreign powers to intervene in domestic affairs. I'm against that, but I have to to be honest as well. This is not what really led, led Libya to failure. What what the main reason for why Libya failed is that Libya was governed by a totalitarian megalomaniacal leader, uh, Gaddafi, who governed the country in a very pre-modern, obsolete kind of ways. I mean, so the, the country. Even though the country is rich or was rich, uh, having oil and all of that, but the, he didn't really exert much more, you know, efforts and resources in developing his own country. So, for example, the country didn't have political bodies at all. The country didn't have any real constitution. Nothing of modern politics was there in Libya uh, uh, before uh, Gaddafi. Uh, uh, I mean, before the ouster of Gaddafi. So, of course, you can imagine uh, a tribal. A tribal society or a tribal country like Libya, with no constitution, with no modern political structures, uh, no political bodies, uh, uh, nothing at all, as I said, related to modern, modern, not modern democracy, but even modern political institutions existed in this country. So people, unfortunately, easily, you know, uh, uh, didn't manage to to keep the democratic process going on, even though that they had that one year of a very optimistic transition with elections and with, but unfortunately they, they didn't manage to keep this going on because they failed to have a unified military, a unified security forces like police officers, etc., and And tribalism and sectorism, you know, both of them have failed the country. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can switch countries, obviously. Egypt has sort of failed and Libya's in a state of civil war right now. Um, another civil war that's going on is in Syria. Um, can you kind of explain um, the situation in Syria and how kind of Bashar al-Assad has managed to, you know, hang on the power while many authoritarian leaders uh, were quickly thrown out? Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, let me just make this as clear. I mean, in, in my point of view, it doesn't make that much difference if a political regime or a political leader is able to resist and to remain in power while his country is totally you know, collapse. So, I mean, I, I don't really praise him for being there so far, being the only dictator that was not removed. Gaddafi, Ben Ali, Mubarak, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, they all left power. He's the only one, as you said, who did manage to stay. But again, this is not because of like he, how smart he is or how popular he is. It's mainly due to some regional, uh, uh, international and domestic dynamics related to mainly, mainly sectarianism. So the country is very sectarian. 
uh, in terms of that the minority are governing the majority as a white family, which is like the, the minority is governing the, the majority. And then the, the country is supported by some regional powers, like let's say Russia, uh, Iran, and 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 unfortunately, from day one, the the the, the, the revolution, the Syrian revolution, turned out to be a sectarian face-off between different religious and sectarian groups. And unfortunately, regional powers have feeded this sectarianism. So Turkey and Saudi Arabia, for example, were siding behind the, with the Sunnis. Iran was siding with the Shia or Alawite. So I mean, unfortunately, the country was divided. And from day one, and so it turned out to be a civil war, and the civil war is going on so far. Uh, uh, it's true that Bashar is there, but he's only governing Damascus and maybe some, you know, parts of of, of Turkey. But he has no sovereign. Uh, some parts of Syria, I'm sorry, but he has no sovereignty his, over his own country. So it's another failure, regardless the fact that Bashar is still there. Mm-hmm. So another part of the Arab Spring is the Arab Gulf states. Um, such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the UAE, how did they respond to uprisings um, both domestically and against neighboring countries such as Yemen and Bahrain? Yeah, uh, very interesting question. I mean, uh, of course, with the case of Yemen and Bahrain, the uh, all Arab Gulf countries, maybe the only exception here is Qatar, uh, but all other Arab Gulf countries uh, have reacted differently. Uh, Bahrain is is an easy country to 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 suppress, you know, any kind of uprisings in because it's a very tiny island. I'm not sure, you know, it's it's a very small, very very tiny island, and and with with without a real military or police officers or army, etc. So what happened was as simple as the you know the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. Uh, uh, called by Bahrain to intervene, so they sent uh, uh, GCC troops, mainly composed of uh, Saudi troops, and so it was an easy story. And of course, the the main reason why they decided to intervene is they they really did they did want to avoid the domino effect because, like, uh, had Bahrain democratized and moved into this direction of democracy, then other uh, Arab Gulf states will face exactly the same. So the, their people will ask also for some democratic changes. So they were not flexible at all. In the case of, I mean, in the case of Bahrain, but now in the case of Yemen, it's a little bit different because the country is much more complicated, having so many tri- tribes and 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 and, and it's it's a, a relatively bigger than than Bahrain and it's a mountainous country with lots of history and divisions, etc. So what happened was Saudi Arabia was able to uh, to strike a deal for a safe exit uh, of Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former president of Yemen. And the deal seemed to be okay. I mean, the deal, the deal was like Ali Abdullah Saleh will resign, will step down, and, and in, in return, he will get his uh, political immunity, means that no political uh, charges or uh, no charges can really uh, hold him accountable. But what happened later on is, again, like Syria, the country, and like Libya, the country was very tribalized. The military in, in Yemen is not really a professional military. It's mainly a, a tribal-based military. Uh, and again, you have also the Shia and the Sunni or the Houthis and the Sunni. So, I mean, uh, unfortunately, again, so exactly the same thing happened. The, the deal, which in my point of view was not bad, but the deal didn't really manage to hold on. And the, the vice president, 
who became the president. His name is Abdur Abu Hadi Mansour. Uh, amazingly, he's still the president of Yemen, but he's very uh, nominal president, which means that he doesn't even live in, in, in Yemen. He lives, I think, in Saudi Arabia or somewhere between Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. And, and the country so far is, is taken by two major groups, a Saudi-allied troops, uh, Yemeni troops, and versus the uh, houses who are believed to be supported by Iran. So again, another sectarian war, another proxy war between, another face-off between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. And I think this face-off, this proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia is what uh, uh, what can really explain the failures of Arab uprisings in Syria, in Yemen, in Bahrain, etc. Uh, so we covered most of the countries that were involved. Um, I kind of want to shift to kind of overarching questions, um, specifically starting off with how did outside countries, um, such as the United States and other Western powers, uh, respond to the Arab Spring? Um, this is mainly the, a matter of, of disappointment to so many Arabs because uh, uh, most of these countries were mainly supporting all Arab dictators and, and Arab authoritarian regimes before the Arab uprising. But now with the Arab uprising, many of them changed positions and they started to support democracy and democratization in Egypt, in Tunisia, etc. But now when again, when, when the democratic transition started to face problems, again, most of Western powers started again to re-support, to, to go behind old dictatorships and old authoritarian regimes. So uh, they have been mainly received, perceived by so many Arabs to be inconsistent and to be sometimes hypocrite. I mean, mainly supporting uh, uh, dictatorships and authoritarian regimes for their own self-interest. And I think, unfortunately, the overall effect of that is very negative over the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that you have mentioned um, in these different countries is the divide um, between Sunni and Shiites. Um, can you explain a little bit more kind of that divide and how it's played a role um, in different Arab states um, during the spring? You know, most of Arab countries are Muslim Sunni countries, mm -hmm. but the eastern part of the Middle East, uh, so this is to mention most of Arab Gulf countries, uh, plus some other places like Yemen and Syria, somehow Egypt slightly though, uh, you have a minority of Shia, and the Shia are estimated to be almost 20 to 30 percent of, of Muslims in the Arab region. And those people, uh, unfortunately, are not dealt with as full citizens. You know, like all all Arab regimes are dictatorships, so they, they have a variety of, of ways to divide and rule. And and even if, if you're Sunni, again, you're still discriminated against. But now when you are uh, uh, Shia, then you have much more of discrimination, unfortunately. You're not treated as, as full citizens. So uh, this is why you have this proxy war always going on between Saudi Arabia, who's believed to be the leader of the Sunni world, versus Iran, who's believed to be the leader of the Shia world. The, the real problem is neither country is democracy. I mean, both of them are the totalitarian, are having totalitarian regimes. Both, both of them are ideologues, so they claim to, uh, you know, promote uh, either Shiaism in the case of Iran or Sunnism in the case of Saudi Arabia, which unfortunately divided, as you said, divided most of Arab countries into. Uh, you know, between Shia and Sunni, and, and this unfortunately didn't help for any democratic transition, any successful democratic transition, uh, because as I said early on when I mentioned the case of Tunisia, the key, the magic for any democratic transition is to reconcile and re to compromise. When you're not able to compromise, whether you're talking about classes or, or, or tribes or uh, religious groups, etc., then unfortunately the, the, the transition is not possible. And this is literally what happened in most of Arab countries, with the only exception being Tunisia. Mm -hmm. So I think another um, 
overarching con- like concept that kind of plugs the Middle East is Islam. Um, have do you think Islamic traditions and culture have like stood in the way of bringing democracy? Um, or a more liberal agenda uh, to different Arab states? You know what, you, uh, that was my opinion, maybe during the very first two, three years of the Arab uprisings, is that Islamic culture and Islamic traditions is mainly to be blamed. But but when you when you just take a, you know, a moment to think about it carefully, you will discover that unfortunately the Arab political culture in general didn't help this idea of compromises, this idea of reconciliation. So it's not only Islamism, it's Islamism. And even secular Arabs as well have failed because again, they didn't have any any idea of what compromises and what reconciliation means. They didn't manage to get along with democratic elections and with democratic results being respected. So I, I think, of course, I can still uh, blame the Islamic culture, whatever you call it, but I, I think it's much more of an Arab culture that have been has been constituted over time along sectarian lines, you know, uh, anti-democratic lines, uh, illiberal lines, etc. Um, so I think another interesting thing that has kind of been evolving um, in the in Arab states over pretty much since the Arab Spring has been feminism. Um, what do you think the Arab Spring has um, brought um, in terms of feminism in culture and just in general? Uh, I'm happy you ask this question because I think this is one of the very few gains of the Arab, Arab Spring or Arab uprisings. Uh, democracy has failed. This is very true. Political changes that were hoped by so many Egyptians, so many uh, Syrians, Yemeni, etc., didn't really come to happen. But the, the real gain is a cultural revolution. So if, if the Arab uprising has really achieved anything at all, it's the cultural revolution, not the political one. Maybe the political one is not yet there. but And, and part of the cultural revolution is, is this idea of gender equality. And, and this idea of, of religious, you know, the religion versus citizenship, etc. So since your question is mainly about feminism, I think, uh, first of all, Arab females have participated very actively in, in most of Arab uprisings, all Arab uprisings, without any exception. They have claimed the public arena and the public space, which was not allowed to, to many of them before the Arab uprisings. Uh, there is a real change in, in the culture and the, the awareness of Arabs, at least youngsters, uh, of, of this issue of gender equality, of, of uh, you know, women education, uh, women being able to not just work, but also to claim uh, political positions or public positions, ju- judicial positions, etc. Uh, so I think Despite the fact that all Arabs are not yet free, but there is a real change in culture when it comes to feminism and to gender equality in general, which I think one of the very positive changes brought by the Arab uprisings. Mm-hmm. So another thing that sort of emerges um, a few years after the spring is the rise of ISIS um, in Iraq and eastern Syria. Uh, do you think the Arab Spring played a role in leading to the rise of ISIS, or do you think that was a separate um, issue? No, at all. I mean, the, the point is like when you have an upheaval uh, in general, you have a power vacuum. I mean, so, and 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 in mainly ISIS mainly came in, in places like in Syria and in, in Iraq. You know, Iraq is not an Arab uprising country. Uh, I mean, back then, at least, it didn't start in the Arab uprisings. But then you can attribute the failure of Iraq and the power vacuum to in Iraq back to the American invasion to Iraq in 2003 and the, the, the decision of United States back then, which I think is wrong, to dissolve the Iraqi army. So those people decided to, you know, to... So I, I think it's not really... I don't see the, this correlation between 
the Arab uprisings and the rise of ISIS. Before ISIS, you had Al-Qaeda, for example, and that was not the time of the Arab, Arab Spring. And I'm sure now ISIS is dead, but then you will maybe have another another manifestation of, of, of Islamic fundamentalism, which might not be attributed to the Arab uprisings. I think it's exactly the opposite. Islamic fundamentalism, terrorism, uh, uh, violence, etc., it, uh, might be attributed mainly to the absence of democracy, uh, to to this uh, totalitarianism, authoritarianism that govern most of Arab countries. This is, a, in my point of view, this is the right way to put it. Mm -hmm. So no, it's the opposite. Of, yeah. So the kind of switch to um, more concluding questions um, after the spring. Um, what do you think it will um, take to for democracy to become normal? Um, and Arab states, and why do you think um, a lot of these countries have struggled so heavily um, to implement these uh, types of governments? I, I look at it since I love history. I think it's mainly a historical gap between the West and the East. You know, uh, let's let's think, when did the um, Industrial Revolution and the political revolution took place in Europe? It was by the end of the 18th century, beginning of 19th century. So it took Europe at least 100 to 150 years of, of, of struggles to get into a state of democracy. So you can speak of a democratic Europe by maybe the Second World War. I mean, mainly by 19, late 1940s, beginning of 1950s. So again, 150 years is, is what Europe needed. I'm not, I'm not exactly saying that Arabs will need 150 years to achieve that, but what I'm saying is there is a, a real cultural gap. There is, because again, when you start an uprising, like the Arab uprisings, you change the culture, you change the traditions, you change the societal relationship, you change individual perspective to God, individual perspective to his or her own body, to other people. I mean, so it's, it's a dynamic process that will take longer than we than I'm expected, uh, I myself expected back in 2011 when the uprisings happened. So what I can tell is, uh, I think Arabs are not an exception in history. They will democratize one day like all other regions. It's it's just a matter of time and a matter of sacrifices and a matter of, of you know, struggles. And I expect that, I hope, let's say, I hope in that uh, in, in 10 to 15 years from now, some positive changes will happen. We, we don't have to forget that there is a second wave of Arab uprisings. It's underestimated, I don't know why, but like you have countries like Sudan, like Algeria, like Iraq, like like Libya, uh, like uh, Lebanon, they are joining the second wave of, of, of democratization and of Arab uprisings. I cannot speak with full confidence of, of their success, but they are going. So, I mean, what I mean by that is the Arab Spring is not dead as many people think. There are still so many dynamics, and, and, and I hope that in the next 10 to 15 years, a new wave of, of democratization will take place, and hopefully this time will be much more successful. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously three ongoing conflicts right now in Syria, um, Yemen, and Libya. Um, what do you think it will take in order to resolve those conflicts, and what do you think peace in those countries would look like right uh, unfortunately, it will take time, uh, again, because you're not here just speaking about Libyans or Syrians or Yemenis. You're speaking about Saudi Arabia, you're speaking about Iran, you're speaking about Turkey, you're speaking about Egypt. You're, I mean, so you're, you're talking about many regional players and and even some, some uh, sometimes international players, like in the case of Syria, for example. Uh, so the, the, in, in order to end the, the war in Libya, you have to have a compromise between Egypt, Turkey, Italy, Tunisia, Algeria, etc. All the involving countries. Same in Yemen. Same in, in Yemen, you have to, to get uh, to a compromise between 
uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. So unfortunately, it will take much more time until the regional environment itself is able to reconcile and to compromise. Then hopefully this will spill over uh, the, the, the regional, the states that we're talking about, the uh, wars that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, kind of regional players. Um, a follow-up question onto that would be, um, how do you think the Arab Spring has played a role in the ongoing Cold War between Saudi Arabia and Iran? It's just another episode of this war. The war started early on, you know, when Iran had uh, an Islamic revolution back in 1979. Uh, that was very alarming to the Saudis because the Saudis wanted to avoid having a similar destiny. Uh, so what happened was, again, this uh, war started as early as 1979 and is still going. So I, I think that, again, I don't want to, to make some artificial, not very accurate correlation. So what I can tell is this is just another episode of this war uh, uh, before the Arab uprisings it took, it took place and it will continue to, to I mean, the, the, such kind of struggles will just continue to occur until uh, democratic regimes will govern both countries. You know, we don't have to forget that the, the, this ongoing war is not actually religious. It takes religious manifestations, but it's actually about the conflict or a clash of, of interests between two different dictator regimes, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran, a very totalitarian system, al Saud family, another totalitarian, you know, governing system or ruling family, etc. So you, it's, it's mainly about like how to democratize both Iran and Saudi Arabia in order to bring peace between them first, and then if the peace happens or whatever you call it, compromises, reconciliation occur between them, hopefully you can speak of the end of the sectarian wars in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So um, right now, Turkey and Egypt are kind of playing a more active role in the Libyan civil war. Um, do you think this could lead to conflict between Egypt or Turkey, or do you think this is more isolated to um, to kind of regional neighbors um, supporting separate factions. I, I think it's another episode of like this clash between, you know, in order to understand why the Libyan, the Turkish and the Egyptians are, are struggling over Libya, you, you have to understand the history of the Arab uprisings in Egypt and the, the history of the Arab uprisings in general, because Turkey has supported Muslim brothers in Egypt and many other Islamic groups in many other Arab countries. And then when Egypt had a military coup and they got rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, they perceived Turkey to be uh, some sort of like a rival or an enemy in that sense. Uh, uh, I think the Egyptians are mainly concerned of, of Libya because like when you have a failed country like Libya being your neighbor with more than 1,000 kilometers of desert territorial areas and you have uh, you know weapons being smuggled into your, your own borders, uh, all terrorist attacks uh, uh, taking off from the Western Sahara of Egypt is mainly coming mainly from Libya. So I think Egypt has some sort of a, a real rationale why they should preserve national security and why they should really intervene in, 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 in Libya. And, and Turkey, uh, in my point of view, they don't have the same concern. However, they want to get sure that Egypt is somehow cornered by by them. So it's, um, again, it's another episode of, of ideological clashes between the current president of Egypt, uh, Sisi, and the current president of, 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 of Turkey, uh, Raghav Tayyip Erdogan. And again, like what we said exactly about Saudi Arabia and Iran, it's a clash of interests, not clash of ideologies, because again, both regimes in Turkey and Egypt are, are non-democratic regimes. So even though it takes uh, some sort of like uh, ideological clashes or rivalries, it are, it's, it's mainly about the clash of dictatorships over political interests. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, what do you think the um, legacy um, of the Arab Spring 
um, was and is going to be kind of as um, things continue to evolve in the Middle East? Sometimes I'm very pessimistic. So I, I think that uh, there will be no legacy at all, or at least it will be a very negative thing about, about the Arab Spring in history. But uh, most of the times I'm very op optimistic. And I think the legacy will be that this will be considered the trigger of a real democratic process that will take place in most of Arab countries. I'm not saying soon, but like in, in as I said before, and I expect in 10 to 15 years, there will be another wave and, and this wave will be much more successful. So I think the legacy will be, this is a cornerstone, Arab Spring, it will be considered the cornerstone of democratization in Arab, Arab, Arab regimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's pretty much all the questions that I had. Um, is there anything that you would like to add that you think our listeners um, should know specifically about the Arab Spring, whether it's regarding to uh, countries or um, the cultural clashes or like different political parties? You know, my especially to youngsters who live in the United States and in the West generally, I ask them, I advise them to read more about the, the history of these countries because this will explain much of what's going on. Unfortunately, sometimes the media will have a very superficial coverage of clashes of you know, it, it's much more than, as I said, it's much more than just a, a rivalry between Egypt and Turkey or Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's the real logic is that you have a region that is full of dictatorships. They both either feed each other, support each other, or clash with each other. So my only thing is is just try to dig deep into the history and the culture of these countries to understand much more that the people there are just normal human beings like anyone. They have exactly the same needs. They are not exceptions in terms of their, their desire to democratize, their desire to live much better living conditions, etc. It's only, you know, you have so many barriers. You have religious barriers, you have cultural barriers, you have sectarian barriers, ethnic barriers, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so to conclude, I want to thank you um, for your time. I think this is going to be super uh, informative uh, for our listeners and giving kind of an overarching uh, view of, of the Arab Spring and uh, kind of some of the failures and successes of the spring. So uh, thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to talk about the Arab Spring. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So we just finished that interview with Dr. Amhen. Again, I hope you kind of enjoy that. He's super knowledgeable uh, and he's done a lot of different work and uh, research on the Arab Spring and the aftermath of it. And obviously I, I took an entire class in the Arab Spring. That's kind of how I was able to interview him. And I actually, I actually did this interview a couple months ago, but it kind of just got backlogged. So I'm glad, you know, I can finally publish it because it was a pretty cool interview. And obviously the Arab Spring is, again, even though, it happened almost nine years ago, pretty much right around this time, actually. Uh, the Most scholars would probably contend that it largely failed um, with autocratic states like Saudi Arabia sort of undermining democratic movements. Uh, we see in Egypt with the overthrow of the initially democratic president. And now they have another autocratic leader who I'm blanking on whose name it is. There are civil wars in Libya and Syria and Yemen. Uh, Iraq obviously has, has to deal with the instability that comes with the growing influence of Iran, for example. Uh, there's autocratic leaders in Turkey. So most people would contend, again, if you just look on the surface, that it largely failed. But if you think of the grand scheme of history, you know, democratic movements have not happened overnight. Uh, if we think about Europe, for example, the amount of time that it took really in the period of the 1800s for countries to fully democratize um, from monarchies to, you know, different sy democratic systems that could exist. It took a really long time for those to happen. It took hundreds of years. 
uh, or decades to really accomplish. So I'm sure that these democratic movements are sort of going to continue to happen as people, I think, become fed up with these leaders. And we sort of talked about the end of our class, sort of the second wave of the Arab Spring in uh, different countries uh, like the Sudan and Lebanon, who are who have undergone, you know, on certain terms, democratic movements. Obviously, I'm not totally sure what's going on with the coronavirus, how viable those sorts of movements are. And it's a bit scary to see throughout the world different, you know, leaders sort of trying to boost their power uh, with the coronavirus. Um, and seeing the Arab Spring, for example, how, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia absolutely were terrified of these democratic movements that were going on in the way that they went about trying to undermine and destroy these movements. We saw this in Baja Rain, when the Saudis obviously came in and pretty much quashed that uprising. Uh, we saw in Yemen, where the Saudis have engaged in extensive warfare against uh, the Houthis, uh, who are the opposition group to the government in that country. So it's, you know, it's a hot button issue and the Middle East, I'm sure, is going to continue to be a hotbed issue uh, because of the oil and because of the, you know, different ties that have gone on over the last, you know, couple of decades. I'm hoping to do an episode on the Iranian and Saudi Arabian Cold War because I think it is critical to understanding the wider Arab Spring and the way that, you know, Middle Eastern politics uh, really works. So, uh, but that's probably an episode for another time. Um Again, I'm not going to talk too much more, uh, but always feel free to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts um, or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm always looking for feedback, positive or negative. Um, If you follow us on Spotify or you listen to us on a different uh, podcasting platform, feel free to DM me on Instagram or email me. My email is also on there Um, just for feedback or different topics that you would like to see or uh, historians um, that you would recommend that I interview. you know, I, it's not impossible to find different uh, people to interview. Um, so, yeah, that pretty much concludes episode 16. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a lot about the Arab Spring and uh, the Middle East.